I wonder if you recognize how important this gathering right here, what we've been doing right now, uh, praising, praying, and now preaching God's word. I wonder if you recognize how important this gathering is to the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ, to send his good news that he is the savior of the world uh, to the nations. Do, do, you, do you recognize that this is, is, is not just a, a gathering that's stuck in between our, our grocery shopping on, on Saturday or our, our laundry folding, uh, in between that and maybe football or, or preparing for the next week. It's not just a religious duty that we check off in the midst of those other tasks that we're engaged in, but rather it is in and through this gathering and the gatherings of of other faithful local churches that Jesus raises up missionaries and sends them off to take his good news to the nations. Sunday by Sunday, as we worship the Lord Jesus Christ, we are being instructed and prepared to participate in Jesus' mission of making the good news known to the ends of the earth. And Jesus' mission, when you think about it, is really quite exciting. It emerges out of our praise and our worship. It goes on to conquer darkness and deceit. It proclaims glorious truth that God is not only mighty, but that he's merciful and forgives. And Jesus, his mission, it perseveres in joy, even with faced with persecution. Friends, brothers and sisters, we we learn all of this from the text that we're looking at together this morning from Acts chapter 13. And if you haven't done so already, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to open them to Acts chapter 13. You can find the passage on page 921 of the Bibles provided. And as we look at this chapter together, we need to remember what's been set up so far in the book of Acts. You'll remember that in Acts chapter 1, Jesus commissioned his disciples to be his witnesses to the ends of the earth. He told them, you're going to take the gospel, the the good news of salvation from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and even to the ends of the earth. Well, so far in our study in the book of Acts, we've gone from Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. And today we're, we're seeing really... The mission of the church in carrying the good news of Jesus begin to that fourth phase, carrying it to the ends of the earth. We're going to see that as Paul begins what we know as his first missionary journey. And, and what's been taking place is that not only have Jewish peoples been hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and believing in him, but so have Gentile peoples. And we're going to see that same thing take place here in Acts Chapter 13. And in some ways, uh, Paul's ministry that we're seeing emerging in this chapter mimics Peter's ministry that we've seen already in the book of Acts. So in many ways, we kind of leave behind Peter's ministry. We begin to pick up Paul's ministry in the book of Acts. So so just like Peter, uh, Paul is sent by God. Just like Peter, Paul, he overcomes demonic forces. Just like Peter, Paul, he preaches to Jews and Gentiles. And, like Peter, God is pleased to use Paul to save many. This is what we see in Acts chapter 13. And as we study this chapter, we need to remember that that while men like Peter and Paul are greatly used by God, ultimately, the book of Acts is not about Peter or Paul. It's about Jesus advancing his mission through his people. Jesus is determined to see his salvation reach the ends of the earth And that should be our heart's desire too. If the Lord's laying something upon our hearts from this text, it's that we should be determined. We should be desirous of seeing Jesus' name made great among the nations. That he should be loved and known and praised where he is not. And that we are called to take his good news to others around us. And maybe even across the globe. Jesus has commissioned us, brothers and sisters, to make his name known. So if that's so, then what's the source of Jesus' mission? Where might Jesus find his missionaries? Right here, in a gathering like this, in a local church. That's what we see in Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. This is the first point for you note-takers out there. Jesus' mission emerges from praise. Jesus' mission emerges from praise. And now follow along as I read Acts chapter 13, verses 1 to 3. Now, there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, 
Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. Do you see that? Jesus' mission, it emerges from praise. Worship right there taking place in a local church. And notice that this is a blessed church in Antioch. Do you see who's there? The prophets and teachers are there. Now, now prophets, New Testament prophets, are like Old Testament prophets in, in that they receive direct revelation, uh, divine revelation from God himself. And so they speak in kind of a, a thus says the Lord manner. Teachers, on the other hand, they, they do really what I'm doing right now, which is taking the Bible and explaining it and expounding it. Well, the church in, in Antioch was blessed to have both. And we don't really know who in this list of men that we see here were prophets or teachers. Luke kind of just leaves that vague for us. But nonetheless, they had them. And when we look at these men, we also see that this church was blessed by, by the, the quality of men they had. They had Barnabas, a man who was sacrificial. We, we read about him earlier in the book of Acts when he, he gave away many resources for the sake of Jesus' mission. And then he himself was sent off to encourage churches. Um, he actually came alongside Paul, helped Paul get his foot in the door when he had just come to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see Simon, uh, Simeon, who was called Niger there, and Lucius of Cyrene. Uh, they're, they're men from Africa, from various parts of, of Africa. And then uh, Menaean, a, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. So he was a friend of somebody in the government. So you can be a Christian and be friends with somebody who's working in the government. We see that there. And then we've got Saul, right? The, the persecutor turned preacher. These are our wonderful, godly men they have there. And the church, what are they busy doing when the Holy Spirit speaks into their life? They're busy worshiping. They're fasting. Uh, and they're not fasting. They're not refraining from eating just, just to, for the sake of doing that or self-righteousness. Now they're, they're trying to discern the will of God for the life of their church family. And what does God do? Well, God the Holy Spirit speaks right there in their midst. And he says, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now, these have to be the two most prominent and perhaps the two most gifted men in the church. So think about what this church is going to lose in this mission of Jesus. They're going to lose their best and brightest. Brothers and sisters, if the Lord is going to do this in our midst too, which we should be praying that he would raise up pastors and missionaries, we have to be ready to part with our best and brightest. And that, personally, is hard for me to take, right? To think about, to imagine but my feelings are far less important than Jesus' mission, right? How we feel about what we might lose, uh, we need to set aside and remember what Jesus is seeking to do in and through us and through our midst. Not only should we be willing to give up uh, perhaps the most gifted among us, those who serve us and bless us most, but perhaps we should be willing to give up our children too. Brothers and sisters, are we praying not that our children would simply have a, a great career, a good marriage, and wonderful children as well, so we could be good grandparents. But maybe we should be praying that the Lord would be pleased to use our children radically to raise up pastors who will serve the Lord Jesus and proclaim his name, and missionaries who will perhaps go to hard contexts like Jim Elliott and perhaps even suffer for the glory of Jesus. Do we care more about Jesus' mission than we do about our feelings and and even perhaps the, the prosperity, the temporal prosperity that our local church might enjoy. Are we ready to part with dear and blessed saints like this church in Antioch was? They were. Do you, do you see what they did? They were obedient to the Holy Spirit. They, they prayed and they, they fasted over this calling. And what did they do? They, they laid their hands on these men and they sent them off. Brothers and sisters, this is where the mission of Jesus begins and emerges from. It's kind of the seedbed. This is the soil where missions is planted. The, the work that we're doing here week by week is so important to furthering the good news of Jesus Christ. This is where it all begins. Jesus' mission emerges from praise. But not only do we see this in our text, we see something else. In verses 4 to 12, we see that Jesus' mission, it defeats devilish powers. This is just incredibly exciting. This is point number two. Jesus' mission defeats devilish powers. Begin reading there in verse four. So, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. 
And they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island, as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Eliamus, the magician, that's the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? And now, behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately, mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking the people, seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Do you see here how Jesus' mission defeats devilish powers? Uh, the, these verses, they, they begin, as I said, the first, Paul's uh, first of three missionary journeys. And in verse 3, notice we're told that, well, verse 3, we're told the church uh, sent Paul and Barnabas off, or Saul and Barnabas. But then in verse 4, we're told that they were sent out by the Holy Spirit. So which is it? Is it, is it the church who sent them off, or was it the Holy Spirit? Yes. Yes, the, uh, the, the church is the glove of the hand of God, as one uh, Christian wisely said. Yes, the church and the Holy Spirit sent them off. And Paul and Barnabas, and we see John as well, they arrive, they get rights to work. They, they preach the good news of Jesus. They preach in synagogues of the Jews and throughout the whole island, but not without some unfriendly competition, right? In verse 6, we are met with this devilish opponent of the gospel. Do you see him there? His name is, is Bar-Jesus. He's, he's a magician. And when we think about magicians in the scriptures, we're not thinking about guys who pull rabbits out of the hat, right? We're thinking about satanic sorcerers. That, that, that's what the Bible means when it talks about magicians. And this guy's name is, is Bar-Jesus. Bar means son of, and Jesus, Yahweh, saves. Uh, this is his J Jewish name. And, and obviously, this guy is no son of Yahweh who saves. He's, as Paul says, right there, uh, he's a son of the devil. He, he's, he's engaged in deceit. He's trying to distract the proconsul from hearing the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul rightly identifies him as a deceiver. Who do we know who was a deceiver from the beginning? Well, it's Satan. This is a devilish work to distort, to distract, divert people from hearing the good news. This happens in our day, whether it be uh, from psychics and horoscopes to anyone pushing people off of the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ and the truth of God's word. That, that's, that's a devilish work. God is a God of truth, and we ought to be committed to truth. And, and notice what we have here. We have uh, Saul, who's, who's also called Paul. So that's, Saul is his Jewish name. Paul's his kind of Greek-Roman name. Same, same thing with um, Bar-Jesus and Eliamus, right? He's this, this is his Greek name. He's a magician. So these two men, each with two names, uh, they're really in this competition, as it were, for the proconsul's soul. Well, who's going to win? Well, we know who's going to win if we, we've read the book of Acts, right? We've seen Peter, the apostle Peter, confront a magician before and pronounce a divine judgment upon him. And what, is, what does Paul do here? Well, he pronounces a divine judgment upon this magician. And what, what's striking about this judgment is that it harkens back to, to Paul's own experience, doesn't it? Remember when Paul was on the road to Damascus opposing the work of the Lord Jesus Christ? And Jesus struck him with blindness. You wonder if there's some mercy in this judgment from Paul. Maybe Paul is desirous of him seeing that, that he has been living in darkness, and then he needs to repent and return, come to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there's, there's even more mercy in this judgment as well. Do you see there in verse 11, it says, And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. How kind of the Lord to only temporarily blind this man. He'll be able to see again. And maybe, just maybe when he sees again, he will truly see the Lord Jesus Christ in His mercy and grace. And we see as well 
there in verse 12, that the proconsul believed, not, not principally at the, at the work that Paul had done in pronouncing this divine judgment upon this man and leading him to blindness, but really at the astonishing teaching of the Lord. It is the word of God that gives life, brothers and sisters. Faith comes by hearing, we're told in the book of Romans. And it's what we have to be committed to. Friends, brothers and sisters, we also need to recognize from this episode that the devil is alive and well today. All forms of false teaching pervert the truth. That They are from the pit of hell. They're, they're devilish. Satan, he is active today. And, and really, sometimes there is a need to speak directly about such matters, just like Paul did here. Now, we are not going to have the kind of divine insight that, that Paul as an inspired apostle had, or Peter as an inspired apostle had. Nevertheless, the, the God, has given us, God has given us His Word, and we can discern between truth and error, between righteousness and unrighteousness. And so we can speak uh, directly to a, a number of matters where we see truth and falsehood playing out. And perhaps we should do so, and perhaps sometimes forcibly, clearly. And even that can be a mercy when friends are confronted with the truth that they're walking in darkness. That's a mercy, and it's a warning to them to turn away from that darkness and deceit and to come to the Lord Jesus Christ. We also need to be mindful in our own personal evangelism, right? As we're sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, we need to remember that Satan wants to distract he wants to remove that seed of the gospel. So Jesus told the, the parable of the soils. He talked about that hard path that the seed fell upon and the bird came and he snatched it away. And Jesus told us, he explained to us that that's what Satan does. So brothers and sisters, when you share the gospel before, during, and after, be praying, Lord, do not allow Satan to snatch this seed away. Father, would you make their hearts good soil that's ready to receive your word with joy that they might believe and bear fruit, fruit that lasts. These are the kinds of prayers that we need to pray. And we need to remember that we're waging war not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers of darkness. And we need to recognize that Jesus overcomes them. We, we see it here, and every Christian here this morning is evidence that Jesus' mission defeats devilish powers. See, Jesus has not allowed that seed to be snatched away from your heart. And it's producing good fruit. Brothers and sisters, you are evidence that Jesus' mission will triumph. That truth will triumph. And though you may be discouraged at times, walk forward in confidence knowing that Jesus' word does have victory. As we read about in Isaiah 55. Be encouraged that God's truth will triumph. Remember that old Christmas carol. It wonderfully proclaims, Jesus came to free us all from Satan's power when we had gone astray. He's done it. He'll do it again. So, so be bold in sharing the good news of Jesus Christ. God's truth will triumph. And connected to that is the third lesson that we have from our text. This is the third point of the sermon. It's going to be the longest one. Here it is. Jesus' mission advances through proclamation. Jesus' mission advances through proclamation. That's what happened in the proconsul's life, right? When, when he believed. But we're about to see it happen in many more lives. So in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 43, so that's the next section here, we hear Paul's synagogue sermon. Several times in the book of Acts, we are told that Paul preached in synagogues. I think we were told that he preached in the synagogue there in verse 5, actually. But we didn't get a record of his sermon. This right here, here in Acts chapter 13, verses... Um, Verses 13 to 43 is the only full-length synagogue sermon that we actually get from Paul. So we can expect that this is probably the kind of sermon that he would preach as he went throughout these synagogues. He would take Old Testament texts and he would explain how they pointed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're going to see in his sermon. And in this sermon, Paul, like a good Baptist, has three points. I'm not a good Baptist today, I've got four. But Paul, he's got three points and he's got two points of application. Here's, here's point number one. God has brought a Savior to Israel. This is the first point in Paul's sermon. God has brought a Savior to Israel. Follow along as I read verses 13 to, uh, to 25. 13. Now Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga and Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. 
But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch in Pisidia. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. After reading from the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, Brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioning with his hands, that justifies the use of hand movements in preaching. <laughs> Moving on. Uh, verse 16. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then they asked for a king. And God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a Savior, Jesus, as he promised. Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, What do you suppose that I am? I am not he. No, but behold, after me, is, after me one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. Here's Paul's simple point in this sermon, in this first point of this sermon. God has brought to Israel a Savior. You'll see that verses 13 and 14, they set the scene there. This band of three missionaries, they're traveling along. Somewhere along the way, John decided to turn around and head back to Jerusalem. We'll think more about John's departure in, in the weeks or chapters ahead, Lord willing. But for now, notice that in verse 14, we have Paul and Barnabas finding their way to a synagogue and sitting down. The, the leaders of the synagogue, they, they read the scriptures, but then they invite Paul and Barnabas to speak. So Paul's sermon formally begins there in verse 15. And with it, he addresses his audience. You, you see there, he has two groups in view. He recognizes the, the faithful Jews who are present there, but also the God-fearing Greeks who are present. And he urges them to listen. Um, and as a, a brief word of, of application, this practice of, of reading the scriptures in, in the synagogues, um, was picked up really by early Christians and used in their worship. It's really why to this day, Protestant churches like ours often include lengthy passages of scriptures to read in their service. Uh, Paul's preaching, his explaining and applying the scriptures is also why Protestant churches have set the sermon aside as a significant portion of their service as well. Well, in, in verses 17 to 22, you notice that, that Paul gives a brief history of Israel. And if you were to go back and, and read through it this afternoon, which I encourage you to do, just notice all of the time he points out God's action. God did this. He did this. He raised up him. He put him down. He removed him. You can see God's action over and over again. And it culminates really there with Jesus and David. You see uh, Paul's launch pad for speaking about Jesus there. Verse 23, it's David. He wants his hearers to understand that, that Jesus is from David's line. He, he uses that term Offspring, And another translation for offspring might be seed, really thus hearkening back to Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, where we are expecting this seed, this son who will come and crush the head of the serpent. And so Paul is making the point in this section that, that all of the Old Testament's hopes as a whole and particularly in the Davidic covenant have arrived in Jesus Christ and that God has brought him. So in, in 2 Samuel 7, God made a promise to David that one day, one of his offspring would, would be the Messiah, the Savior of God's people, and that he would reign forever. And so Paul says to his hearers, as clearly as he can, God has brought to Israel a Savior. And he explicitly names it. It's Jesus. This is all as he promised. Paul is, is trying to be clear about this. He, he even, uh, in verses 24 and 25, his references to John the Baptist even support this as well. This is what God has done in history. He sent that final prophet, the, the book of Isaiah, in Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 and 5, and, and Malachi chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, talked about. God has prepared the way for the arrival of this Savior in John the Baptist. And he's saying to his hearers, God has brought this Savior. Now, brothers and sisters, 
Before we move on to Paul's second point, I want you to notice something about Paul's preaching. It's something that you should want from preaching in this pulpit or, or any other church that you are a part of and sitting under. Paul magnifies the might and the mercy of God. Right? He magnifies God's might as he tells how God does this and he does this and he does this and he does this. And especially God's might in that phrase, God has brought. God powerfully worked in history. He did something that we could not do and that no man could do in his own strength. When you are weak, when you're weary, when you're worried, you need to remember that you have a God who wills and works in the world with unrivaled power and might. And Paul magnifies God's might and his mercy. God brought us a savior. Just, just as he promised. God has brought us a savior. A savior to undeserving people like us. People marked by bitterness and brokenness. People stained with selfishness and sin. People who have rebelled against and retreated from God. In his mercy, God promised to bring a savior to those kinds of people. People like you and me. And he has brought a savior to those kinds of people because he's a faithful God, a promise-keeping God. This is what we should want in our preaching, the magnification of God and his might and mercy. And this is what we need, isn't it, as believers in Jesus Christ? We, we need to hear that God is mighty to save. Paul proclaims God's might and mercy in his second point too. In verses 26 to 31, Paul proclaims that not only has God brought a Savior, but he's also sent out this message of salvation. That's kind of Paul's second point, that God has sent out his message of salvation. Salvation, you see, not only needed to be accomplished, but it also needed to be announced. And that's what Paul is doing in this section of his sermon. He's announcing what God has accomplished. Read Acts 13, verses 26 to 31 now. Paul preaches, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, fulfilled them by condemning him. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses to the people. You see, Paul is announcing what God has accomplished in Jesus Christ. In verse 26, he, he once again identifies his audience, right? He, he identifies his audience as Jews and Gentiles, and he groups them together, and he addresses them. He, he wants to speak to them about this message of salvation, about what God has done in the person of Jesus Christ. And, and what does Paul tell them? He, he tells them, as we thought about last week, that Jesus was rejected. We thought about that from Isaiah 53. Jesus was rejected. Surprisingly, he was rejected by those who read the scriptures every Sabbath. That should be a warning to us, right? Familiarity with the scriptures does not ensure that we recognize and understand and even believe what God is doing in our midst. Even so, the Jerusalem leaders' rejection of Jesus was a fulfillment of Isaiah 53 and other scriptures. Paul tells them, look, Jesus was innocent and they knew it. They knew he was innocent. But the leaders of Jerusalem, along with Pilate, they put Jesus to death. And there in verse 30, Paul once again reminds us here is that those in Jerusalem were simply fulfilling what was written of Jesus. What God revealed, they fulfilled. In calling attention to this, Paul is not so subtly making plain that they were operating according to God's revealed and predetermined plan for his Messiah. Paul also calls attention to the fact that Jesus was crucified on a tree and laid in a tomb, thus bearing God's curse according to the Old Testament. Anyone who was hung on a tree, according to the Old Testament, was cursed by God. And then, you see there in verse 30, it marks the pivotal turning point in this announcement of what God has accomplished. While Jesus was laid in a tomb, three days later, God raised him from the dead. And Jesus proved he was alive by his many appearances to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And what is more, Jesus has even commissioned them to be 
witnesses, declaring that salvation is found in him. So you see, Paul, he actually summarizes the key points of the good news about Jesus Christ, right? He, he identifies Jesus' innocence, his sinlessness, his righteousness. He was the sinless representative and substitute for sinners. He, he identifies Jesus' cursed death on the tree. And Paul boldly proclaims Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his, his public vindication and victory over sin and death. And all of this, Paul is saying, qualifies Jesus as the source of salvation. And this is the message of salvation. That Jesus lived and died and was raised from the dead in accordance with the scriptures. So that our sins might be forgiven. This is the message of salvation that Paul himself in his own writing right, will later highlight in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verses 3 to 5. And by way of application, I, I want to stress the, the importance of guarding this content, this message as that of first importance. In, in Christian circles, we sometimes refer uh, to the, the message, this message of salvation as the gospel or the good news of Jesus Christ. But sometimes in Christian circles, the objective work of Jesus, his life, his death, and his resurrection, is clouded by discussions of gospel living or gospel ethics. So, for example, a number of years ago, I remember one prominent Christian leader, uh, in, in the hopes of underscoring to Christians how important marriage is, uh, saying something like, marriage is the gospel. Or, and others would later say, marriage is a, a gospel issue. And, and what they were trying to communicate was that marriage, it, it pictures the gospel, right? In, in that it portrays Jesus' love for his church. And that to distort marriage is to distort a living picture of the gospel. But... That said, it's not precisely true to say that marriage is the gospel, nor is it really a gospel issue. Presently, some Christians might even be tempted to do something similar with sexuality, as if to say sexuality is a gospel issue. And certainly we have heard recently from Christians that justice is the gospel, or justice is a gospel issue. Well, according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and I think what we're seeing here in our text is that the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus is the announcement. It's the gospel. It's the good news. It's the message of salvation. So if everyone was properly married, that doesn't mean that they were saved. They're not, they're not saved from sin. If everyone lived in accordance with God's design for their sex and sexuality, well, still, they would not be saved. If justice were perfectly executed in our world, again, that doesn't mean that people are saved from eternal damnation. All of these things are important, incredibly important, but they're not of first importance. In and of themselves, they are not the gospel. And, and similarly, there's a sense in which you cannot live the gospel. Jesus lived the gospel. It was his life, his death, his resurrection. It's the announcement of good news. So when we're, we're talking about the gospel, the, the message of salvation, we're, we're talking about salvation itself and what Jesus has accomplished. That's ultimately what the world needs. And the point of this section of Acts 13 is quite simply that Jesus' mission, it advances through this proclamation. It doesn't advance through the proclamation of marriage. It doesn't advance through the proclamation of proper sexuality. It advances through the announcement that Jesus has lived for sinners, that he's laid down his life for them, and that he's been lifted up from the grave so that our sins might be forgiven. Now, if you've shared the gospel regularly in your, your life, then it's likely been your experience that the most contentious point in the gospel message of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection is his resurrection. It's, it's often what people mock in the book of Acts, and it's often what people mock today. And I think that's probably why Paul's entire third point is dedicated to explaining that Jesus' resurrection is nothing less than the fulfillment of the scriptures. So if Paul's first point was that God has brought us a Savior... And if his second point is, that, is the work of the Savior, that Jesus lived, died, and rose again, his third point is that God has fulfilled the Scriptures. Follow along and see if you can spot this for yourself there in verses 32 to 37. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this He has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. Also, as it was written in the second psalm, you are my son. I have, today I have begotten you. And as for the fact that he raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way. 
I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Therefore, he says also in another psalm, you will not let your holy one see corruption. For David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. Notice there that Paul explicitly quotes three passages of Scripture. He quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, Isaiah chapter 55, verse 3, which we read earlier in the service, and Psalm 16, 10. He quotes them to explain that the Scriptures predicted the Messiah's resurrection from the dead and that he was the offspring of David. And, and he underscores his point by saying that old King David, he saw corruption. He went to his grave and he wasted away, but that Jesus did not. And Paul's point is, that's how we know we've got salvation in him. He did not see corruption. He's the one that was promised in Psalm 16, 10. God has fulfilled the scriptures in Jesus. And it's at this point that Paul pivots and makes a pointed application. He, he pivots and makes ap application in verses 38 to 41. And here are his two simple points of application. Believe in Jesus and beware of unbelief. That's what Paul says. See if you can see it for yourself. Begin there in verse 38. We'll read to 43. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about you. Look, you scoffers, be astounded and perish, for I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells it to you. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Believe in Jesus for freedom from the curse and condemnation of the law. Believe in Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. That's what Paul says in verses 38 and 39. In fact, we could, we could put it a little stronger than that. Believe in Jesus and his work for your justification, for your right standing with God. That word um, freed there in verse uh, 39, you might have a little footnote down there. It, it, it can also be translated justified. And at the end of the day, we are justified not by our works of the law, but by our faith in Jesus Christ and his saving work. You see, keeping the law of Moses, remember he's speaking to his Jewish, Jewish audience, his God-fearing Greeks, he's telling them, like, keeping the law of Moses, it's not going to set you free from sin. It's not going to set you free from slavery to sin. It's not going to justify you in God's sight. You cannot be justified by the works of the law. Paul will say that later in, in his letters to the Galatians. So, so come to Jesus and believe in Jesus. That's how you get right standing with God. Justification is an act of God's free grace wherein he pardons you of all of your sin and he accepts you as righteous in his sight only for the righteousness of Jesus Christ imputed to you, credited to you, given to you. And you receive all of that salvation blessing by faith alone. So Paul is pleading with them to believe upon the Lord Jesus. Friend, if you're here this morning, you're not a believer and follow the Lord Jesus Christ, I urge you, I plead with you to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you can't clean up your life before coming to God. You, you can't keep the laws that God has made or, or the laws that you're trying to make yourself. You can't do it in your own strength. You need the help of the Holy Spirit to live a life that's pleasing to God. And, and the only way we do that is by humbling ourselves, recognizing that we've sinned again and again and again and again against the sovereign God who made us, who gave us life and breath. We've rejected him. We've rebelled against him. But in love and in history, God brought us a savior and he lived for us. He lived the righteous life that the law of Moses required. Jesus was sinless and we know our own hearts. We know we're not. Jesus was righteous. He kept the law for us and for our salvation. And it's because he was righteous, because he was that spotless lamb that the Old Testament pictured and foreshadowed. He could lay down his life for sinners like us and be raised from the grave. 
So when we come to Him and we hide ourselves in Him and we point to Him and say, I have no goodness, no righteousness in myself, but all of my righteousness is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the expression of faith. We're resting on His work alone for our salvation. God is pleased to accept us and to forgive us of all of our sins. So friend, believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be justified in God's sight. You'll be welcomed into His family and received into eternal glory. But beware. That's what Paul says next to those who are listening to him. He says, beware of unbelief. You you know, the prophets, they actually predicted unbelief. Uh, Paul quotes from Habakkuk, I think. It's Habakkuk chapter 1, verse 5, where he says, look, there's going to be some people who hear, but they're not going to believe. And so Paul warns his hearers, don't be those. Friend, maybe you've been coming to church for weeks or months or years, and yet you do not believe. Friend, be warned. God's eternal wrath awaits for those who reject Him and who resist His invitation and offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. Children, you're here week after week after week. Don't refuse to believe. Believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But there is joy and eternal reward for those who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ for their salvation. Oh, friends, come to believe upon Him and so be saved. And you begin by grace. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And you continue on in grace. Do you see how Paul and Barnabas encouraged those who, who followed them? You see that there in verse 43? We're told that many followed Paul and Barnabas. I think we'd expect that they're, they're following the Lord Jesus at this point. And do you see how Paul and Barnabas encouraged them on? They urged them to continue on in the grace of God. Right? So, so once we begin in God's grace, we're saved by grace. We, we, we don't go back to trying to earn God's favor by keeping the law. No, we rest in God's grace and it's out of gratitude and thankful for, thankfulness for what God has done for us that we live and endeavor to live in accordance with His commands and please Him. We begin in grace. We continue on in grace. We make it a home by grace, right? It is grace has brought us safe as far. Grace will lead us home. Oh, rest in what Jesus has done for you. Well, what we've seen in Acts chapter 13, verses 13 to 43 is that Jesus' mission is advanced through proclamation. People are, are believing. We're going to see some more of that in the verses that follow. Paul and Barnabas, they had been sent out from Antioch and Syria, and now sinners are being saved hundreds of miles away at Antioch and Pisidia, two different places. Salvation is going to the ends of the earth. And really, Jesus' mission advances. And even as it advances, it encounters adversity in the course of its advance. This is what we see in the, the final verses of Acts chapter 13, verses 44 to 52. Jesus' mission, it perseveres through persecution. Jesus' mission perseveres through persecution. That's the fourth and final point. Pick up reading there in verse 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul reviling him. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, They began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city. Stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Well, I, I trust and hope that you see how Jesus' mission perseveres through persecution. Not only do Paul and Barnabas face reviling at the synagogue, 
But they also faced rejection of the city. And what do they do? They keep going. They persevere. At first, it appears that this mission of Jesus had had nearly full and total victory as almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord on that next Sabbath day. But envy and jealousy were at work in the hearts of the Jews. It's hard to see others succeed sometimes, isn't it? It's hard to see others succeed. Jealousy is certainly a danger for all in pastoral ministry. Jealousy certainly creeps up in my heart from time to time. And as humans, we always want more. And if someone else has more, well then, we want more too, don't we? We often feel as though we deserve it. But comparison, and perhaps we can even say envy and jealousy, is the thief of joy, as a friend is fond of saying. As Christians who are often jealous of other Christians, maybe even other churches, we let jealousy steal our joy. And sometimes through our reviling and contradiction, we steal the joy of those brothers and sisters who are just going about their business serving the Lord. What we should want above all else is the glory of Jesus Christ, even if that means decreasing while others increase. Paul and Barnabas are not deterred, nor are they distracted from their mission. Instead, they speak out boldly and fearlessly. They recognized that their mission is divinely authorized and ordained. While they were fully convinced that they should take the good news about Jesus to the Jews first, they also knew that God had commanded them from Isaiah chapter 49 verse 5 to take God's salvation to Gentiles and to the ends of the earth. That's what they claim there in verse 47. And this begins a pattern uh, for Paul. He, he goes to the Jews first and then if rejected, he goes to the Gentiles as well. And, and it makes perfect sense. If Jesus is the Savior of Jews and Gentiles, well then he needs to be proclaimed. His message needs to be announced to Jews and Gentiles. And let us learn a lesson from Paul and Barnabas. When the highest authority in the universe, when the highest authority in the universe has authorized you to tell others the good news about Jesus, there's no need for fear. And you can persevere in proclaiming that good news. Brothers and sisters, this needs to get deep down into our bones, or perhaps I should say our souls. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. And he has commissioned us as his disciples to go and to tell others. Matthew 28, that's what the Great Commission is about. We can tell them boldly and fearlessly the good news that God has brought a Savior. Christian, the, the ultimate authority of the universe has commissioned you to persevere in proclaiming the message of salvation. And for many of us, let's be honest, for many of us, what we need is not more teaching and training. What we need is more faithful obedience and humility and confidence in the Lord's commission. That's what we need. And perhaps that's what we ought to pray for often. The, the Gentiles, do you see there? They are especially joyful at the good news that they and other Gentiles will be privileged to hear. They get to hear the message of salvation. Let's pray for hearts that rejoice and honor the word of the Lord like they do. Like when we come through these doors each Lord's Day, we get to remember, we're going to get to hear that God has brought us a Savior. For all of our sins that we've committed in this past week and know over and over and over again, He has sent us a Savior to forgive us of those sins. That ought to bring us great and deep joy that we have a place in His family, that we're adopted sons and daughters. And that strangely, He's even commissioned sinners like us to go and tell other sinners the message of salvation. Pray each Lord's Day that your heart will be ready to honor God's work with faith and obedience like these Gentiles do. And as you go and tell, you will probably experience what Paul and Barnabas experienced. Some received Jesus, we see here, but some rejected Jesus. The message of salvation does divide. We, we need to be prepared for that. We need to expect that. Jesus told us that this would be the case. But you can be confident because of what we're told there in verse 48. All those who have been appointed to eternal life will believe. That word appointed means assigned or designated. Uh, scholars point out that Luke is using the passive voice, thus indicating that God is the agent of appointing and assigning and designating people unto eternal life. And thus, in time, giving them the gift of faith. God's sovereign commands to evangelize. 
gives us courage to persevere in Jesus' mission. But so does God's sovereign choice and commitment to save His people. The Word will be victorious, as we see there in verse 49. The Word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. Now, though the Word of the Lord is often victorious, sometimes it is still good and right to move on to other places and pastures for preaching the good news of Jesus. It, it appears that persecution in the city rose to such a level that Paul and Barnabas, they were driven out of town, but they persevere. Sometimes, that's how God makes the mission move on. Right? Think back to the church in Jerusalem at, at Stephen's martyrdom. Right? It was that great persecution that arose that sent people out to share the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes it's pressure and persecution that furthers preaching and proclamation so that the mission of Jesus can move on. Sometimes that's how God moves his mission on to the next phase of his plan. So they go, we see here, to Iconium. And as we'll see next week, Lord willing, should the Lord Jesus tarry, they proclaim the message of salvation there too. And I don't know about you, but I'm amazed that according to verse 52, they were filled with joy. Did you notice that? You would think that they would be discouraged. I mean, I, I imagine that I would be discouraged. Perhaps you're discouraged when you share the good news of Jesus Christ And it's rejected by your friends or your family members. And maybe even in the course of that, not just the message, but maybe you experience some rejection as well. That that could lead you to discouragement. But we see here that they're filled with joy. Shouldn't shouldn't we be filled with joy even though we might face persecution and and rejection? Yes is the obvious answer. We know that as Christians, but, but why? Well, that's what I want us to think about as we conclude. Why were Paul and Barnabas filled with joy? after preaching and being persecuted and pushed out of town. Why should we rejoice and persevere through persecution? Well, perhaps that's evidence that Jesus really has called us to take up his mission and that he really is working through us. Maybe it's evidence that the message really was clear. We should rejoice because though we may be rejected by men, we've not been rejected by God. We can endure the scorn of men if we know the salvation of God. We can endure the mistreatment of men if we know the mercy of God. It's only a firm grasp on God's mercy and grace to us in Jesus Christ that keeps us from self-pity. And it stiffens our spines to persevere in preaching. What is more, it is astonishing that God should call sinners like us into His army. I mean, as we'll sing in just a moment... Brothers and sisters, we've been called to war. To love the captive soul. That's what we were when Satan had us. And we've been called to rage against the captor. To pursue the defeat of devilish powers. We've been called to take the sword that makes the wounded whole. That's the message of salvation in Jesus Christ. And fight through prayer and proclamation to fight with faith and valor. And though we may be faced with trials on every side, perhaps even persecution, we know that the outcome is secure. Christ will have. It's not in doubt. He will have the prize for which he died, the inheritance of nations. Brothers and sisters, this is what Jesus has called and commissioned us to do to take his salvation to the ends of the earth. So let's, let's ask our God for the conviction, for the confidence, and the courage that we need in this calling. Let's pray together.